Okay, let's turn then to the 22nd chapter of Luke. As I think I said before, but obviously to a different half of the congregation. Uh, we're getting close to the end of the Gospel of Luke. I don't know what I'm going to be preaching afterwards. It's ridiculous. It seems like I've been preaching from Luke for so long that, that it's just there in my blood. But thankfully there's, there's still lots left to preach in the Bible. Uh, yeah, I have to begin to think of what I'm planning, what I'm going to start preaching next. Um, I'm going to be reading today from verse 7 all the way down to verse 38. Okay, long portion of scripture, but uh, I want us to have a look at it in its fullness. And then we'll, we'll, I'll break it up into little sections, okay, and we'll look at the first part. Okay, so Luke 22, beginning at verse 7, ending at verse 38. Then came the day of the unleavened bread, the unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb was to be sacrificed, Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare it? they asked. And he replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters, and say to the owner of the house, The teacher asks, Where is the guest room where I may eat? The Passover with my disciples. And he will show you to a large upper room, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. And so they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat of it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink it again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me me is with mine on the table The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them might be who who would do this. Also a dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be considered the greatest. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, And those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest. And the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one at the table? 
but I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And, I, and when you have turned back and strengthened your brothers, but he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. And Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the cock crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. Then Jesus asked them, when I send you without, or when I sent you without purse, bag, sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. And he said to them, but now you have a purse. If you have a purse, take it. And if you have a bag, take it also. And if, I, and if you do, don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. I will tell you, this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. The disciples said, See, Lord, here are two swords. That is enough, he replied. Amen. Amen. Just let me take this out of my pocket. It's somewhat distracting. So we're right at the, the last, last moments of Jesus' earthly ministry. This is the last evening, the last day, last evening. Here Jesus is making preparations. This is going to be the last meal that he will eat before he is crucified. We saw last time, again I spoke to a different congregation, but the last time we saw Judas being motivated, manipulated by Satan. Not Satan taking over Judas so much as Judas giving himself to Satan and doing the work and going to the, the chief priests, the Pharisees, the, the leaders of the people and negotiating with them a price in order to betray Jesus. One of the twelve, one of those who had been closest with Jesus, whom Jesus had given delegated authority to, now turning his back and seeking somehow in some way to benefit by the betrayal of Christ. And I reminded us last time that that should serve as a warning to us all, no matter how close we think we have been. No matter how core group we are, we must always remember the warning of Judas. He who walked among the apostles and was counted among the apostles. Yet the Bible says that he was a devil from the beginning. He was a thief from the beginning. His heart was never truly Christ's. He was there simply because he wanted to gain something. It was for his best. And when he began to see that he was not going to benefit by his 
connection with Jesus, he looked for an exit strategy. He looked for some kind of material blessing. And he betrayed or began to plan to betray Jesus in secret. We're here now in verse 7. And it's the day of the Passover. It's the big day, the festival day. Jerusalem would have been full of people. I have read it. Somewhere between half a million to a million people would have been in Jerusalem. It would have been full. Not only Jerusalem itself, but every small satellite village around Jerusalem. Full and overflowing. If we remember when Jesus was born... In Bethlehem. And Bethlehem was full and overflowing because of all the, I want to call them, they weren't refugees and they were pilgrims. The people returning in order to sign their documents to say that they were from Bethlehem and pay their tax. Well, here in Jerusalem, it is a massive festival. If if you've ever seen pictures of like the carnivals in New Orleans or Buenos Aires, you know those those massive carnival times. Now I'm not saying people were dancing around in, in sparkly bikinis, no. But there was this huge party atmosphere. There was a massive influx of of, of pilgrims coming to worship. And town was full and commerce was full indeed for the chief priests, the the Pharisees, the leaders of the temple, this was their largest money-making weekend. This is the week. It went for a weekend, but also for seven days. This, this festival lasted for seven days. And each of the days, it just got bigger and bigger, and people gave more and more money. So on this day, this busy, busy day, where people then have to go and purchase a lamb. Remember, the only place you could purchase a, a certificate lamb was from the temple. You went to the temple and you purchased a, a, a temple-approved lamb, which was then sacrificed. Normally, it would be one lamb per household or for six people. And so the, the, that lamb itself, you'd have to eat it all. The Feast of the Passover was eaten with bitter herbs. Uh, for you and I, think of minced dandelion leaves in vinegar. That's what they were eating. They would eat that was that was like the salsa they dipped their bread in. That was their dip. And the idea was in order to produce a bitter taste in the mouth, to remember the hardship of Egypt, to remember the difficulty that God had drink drawn them from and the the bitter tears that were wept while they were in slavery in Egypt so the idea of this again think of of bitter herbs think of of crushed dandelion leaves if you've ever as a child eaten a dandelion leaf you know it's bitter you can't eat dandelion leaves so don't worry Jesus here in this portion and this portion is a narrative portion of scripture it's not a doctrinal it's one of those kind of uh the 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 glue that keeps the whole thing together but even though it's narrative and not doctrinal there's so much still that we can learn here 
there's so much in the, the aspect of who Christ is and also how he works through his people. The acts of providence. Jesus sent Peter and John and said to them to go and make preparations. This is not right. As I'm not saying it's incorrect, but normally you would send the least. Normally you would you would send you would send the money person. We know that the money person was Judas. Judas was the keeper of the purse, and it was him who made the arrangements, the administration. He paid the bills. He he went and made the arrangements. He was the guy behind the scenes who made things happen. And this normally would fall to his responsibility. It would be Judas's responsibility to plan the the um the schedule and to make the arrangements of accommodation, to buy the meals, to purchase all the little things that go along with it, the accoutrements. But yet Jesus turns to Peter and John, his right-hand man. He turns to those who, if we were to look with our human eyes, we would say, well, these are the, these are the most important guys. Peter and John, together with James, are Jesus' inner circle. And here Jesus is turning to them to do something that is... Seemingly beneath their station. Seemingly not really in line with their job duties. I don't know what they call that. You know, the, the, what is required of them. It's not in their contract. Yet Jesus turns to them and sends them. And says to them to go and make preparations. Now, it must have been... <laughs> Could you imagine? You're not really used to doing these things. It's not really your part, your, your place. And Jesus turns around to you and says, go and do this. And you're like, okay, well, what, what, have you not noticed that tens, hundreds of thousands of people? Uh, it's a bit late in the day. On the day of celebration, Jesus then tells you to go and purchase all the things and make all, the, all of the uh, preparations. That he might, you're like, well, it's a little bit last moment there, Jesus. It's a little bit like to the line and a little bit over. That evening they were to celebrate. That means that they would have to purchase the lamb. They'd have to get the room. They'd have to get the, 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 uh, the couches. They didn't have chairs. They had couches. They had to have the tables. They had to have the, all the bitter herbs. It took a few days to get all those things together. And yet, here the last moment, and they ask Jesus, where do you want us to prepare it? What, how are we going to do this? And then Jesus says this, and this is a wonderful example of God working in providence. It is a combination of the natural and the supernatural. It is God working supernaturally through the natural. Jesus tells them, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Let me stop there. We live in a gender fluffy time. When men and women don't really have specific roles anymore. There are not jobs for women and there's not jobs for men. Not officially anyway. Okay. Like when I worked in Varax, uh, I worked uh, on the Molabandi. 
the painting line. And I was lifting heavy weights, things like 120 kilos. And I was lifting them all onto a, uh, a chain that, that was three, four, I don't know, it was, it was about three, four feet off the ground. Or maybe more than that, six feet off the ground, actually, yeah. And I was doing that eight hours a day, every day. And uh, for five days a week, I'd have a 10-minute break, a 20-minute break, and a 10-minute break. And you'd always be moving. You'd never stop. And they tried to have ladies come from the other part of the factory and do that. And after an hour or two, the poor ladies were wrecked. And I had to do my job and their job. But then also, in another part of the, the factory, they have the seamstress, the ladies who do all the sewing of the big mattresses. You know, they, they, they put your, and, uh, and we have found through experience, that's a lady's job. Because any man that they put there made such a mess of it. It was just terrible. Sewed their fingers and lacked the finesse. Now we can say, well, there are men who can definitely do that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And yes, absolutely. There would have been probably women in the world who would be able to, to do that constant lifting and, and, and uh, that, that physical labor. Of course, I'm sure there are ladies in the world who could do that. But on average, women have better finger control than men. Better eye finger control. How do we know this? Because the finesse work of doing all that, men just like, yeah, whatever, you know? Anyway, but we live in a time where the gender roles are fluffed. They're, they're, they're in distinct. But in Christ's day, there was such a clarity to gender roles. There were things that were jobs for men and there were jobs for women. Now, it wasn't uncommon to see men carrying liquid but they would carry it in a uh, uh, a wineskin a man would carry a wineskin we talked before in the past what a a wineskin looked like it was a big you know the skin of a goat basically big heavy thing over his shoulders he would carry it that was a manly thing to do and the men were required but when we're talking about a pot a jar that was a distinctly Woman work. It was a young lady's work. It was a maid's work. It was the work of a young lady. She would go and she would, who works in the kitchen or something like this, she would go and she would get that jar of water, carry it on her head. To see a man carrying a jar of water was a very unusual thing. It was considered highly effeminate. It would have been a slur upon the man's manhood. It would be, it would be a joke. And it would be shocking. And as you saw it, you would, you, it would stand out to you. And it would be something that never really happened. It could happen, of course. And we know it did happen. But it wasn't really a, a normal occurrence. So Jesus tells them that they're to go to the city. And as they're entering, they'll see a young man approaching them, carrying a water jar. Whether he had it on his head, I don't know. I would doubt that. Probably carrying it in his hands. Slopping it over in a hurry. That they were to then follow that young man. And as he went into the house, Jesus tells us here. Follow him to the house that he enters. And say to the owner of that house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I might eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you to a large furnished upper room. Make preparations there. So as they 
follow this young man. He enters the house and they go to the owner of the house and they simply say, where is the, the room prepared for the teacher that he might celebrate the Passover with his disciples? They show him to an already prepared room. It's all prepared. The couches are there. The tables are there. The bitter herbs and bread is already prepared. The only thing that is lacking would be the lamb. That John and Peter, or Peter and John, would have had to go and purchase, and lay their hands upon, and, and symbolically identify with, and have it sacrificed, and cooked in the really hot oven, and then it would be brought back, and all of that lamb, head to tail, would have had to be eaten. Every little part, there'd be nothing left. We see Christ moving in this wonderfully omniscient way. We see him dictating. Not only did he know that this was going to happen, he knew where it was going to happen. And for you and I, that should give us confidence. Again, this is a narrative, it's not doctrinal. But it should demonstrate to us the control Christ has over normal life. You would never have guessed this scenario in a hundred years. This was something so unthinkable that you would never have said, you know what, go there and just in case you see some fella carrying a water jar. That would never have popped into your head. Neither would you have been able to to guess or suppose or presuppose that there would be an entire upper room. The room in question here, the idea is that it's a very fancy room. It's not just like a little hovel. Jesus was born, we know, and after he was born, he was laid in a manger, basically a trough. A, 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 a thing that animals eat out of. And it was very low status. There was nothing fancy about it. It was quite the opposite. But here, the, the idea is that it's posh. It's luxury. It's expensive. There is a great worth. And again, if you're Jesus and his disciples, you're thinking, how could this happen? In Jerusalem that is fully booked, Jerusalem and all the little satellite towns around it, all the little villages around it, there, there is no motel. There is no hotels that are not booked. There are no restaurants that, uh, seating that is available. Everything is booked for the next week. And yet Jesus is able to direct the disciples, Peter and John, to the right person who takes them to the right place. They say the right thing and all of a sudden there is an abundance. The preparations have been made. The seating has already been arranged. They don't even have to arrange the seating. How wonderful that be? They don't have to set up anything. It's already there. What a wonderful lesson for us. 
All too often we, we become so self-dependent, don't we? we? We almost cut the Lord out of our plans. We, we almost have to say, well, you know, what are we going to do? How are we going to do it? And we forget that Jesus Christ is in control of every situation. We make this foolish separation between the spiritual and the, the, the material. The sacred and the secular. And it doesn't exist in Christ's kingdom. Jesus Christ is Lord of all. And even in, in things like the corona pandemic situation crisis that we're going through right now Christ is in control and his plans are being performed and they're working themselves out there's this old Irish old sprock word what's that in English? a proverb a proverb and it says in the always remember in the toughest of times Everything's going to work itself out in the end. Like, oh. And then it says, and if things are not all worked out, well, then it's not the end yet. There comes to us the reassurance that Jesus Christ is in control, that He is able to provide, that He is able to guide. Let us not be those who are full of fear at the, the lack of assurance. That Jesus Christ is in control. Another lesson I think we, we can learn from this is that Jesus sent James and John, or not James and John, Peter and John, to do a menial task. To do something that was not really their place, their purpose. We have to remember that Jesus Christ sends people to serve, not to be served. That he send, he's sending his trusted right-handed and left-handed man, I don't know what you call them, to do his will. To do something that perhaps others would, would say is not really their, their place. And we see that unfolding later on in the chapter, don't we? With the conversations about who's the best and who's the most important. Who, who's the, the one who's the, the true and real leader of the pack. We see clearly demonstrated by Christ's actions that those who lead are supposed to be those who serve. They're the ones who are to, to go and prepare and to provide for God's people. And it is a, an honour, an honour to do so. It's not wearisome or a burden we should not be among those who seek to be served. Rather, we must be with Christ and his disciples and seek to serve one another. Here we are at the end of the earthly life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in, in this little portion, this little narrative in between part, a little building block, we're instructed so very clearly of the importance of servanthood in the Christian life. The importance of to follow Jesus means to serve him. And it may be beneath your flesh or your view of yourself. 
but you are still required to do so. You may not understand. I can only imagine the, the confused look on Peter and, and John's face when Jesus says, I want you to go make preparations. And they're like, oh, what? Oh, what? Where? It's a bit late. I hate leaving things at the last minute. If you don't know that about me, I just don't like doing it. I get all panicky and all like, oh. Here Jesus left everything at the last minute. I'd be like, mm, Lord, fine. <laughs> Do we not have this last year as well, Lord? Come on, why? And yet, here he is in control. It's a lesson of trust. A lesson. A demonstration of his glory. I can only imagine the confusion and the little bit of panic. Lord, what are we to do? How are we to get this done? They did not realize that Christ had, either by natural means or by supernatural means, already made preparations, had already caused everything to be prepared and made in advance. Let us not be among those who always have to question and uh, stumble. Now, questions are good, and I think the question here, they asked the question here, but then they got their, their instruction, go and do this, go and do that, go, and they went. They may not have understood, especially, can you imagine living in a, in a, a clearly defined gender society? And Jesus saying, you'll see a man carrying a water pot. And they'd be like, excuse me, what? What kind of place are you taking us to, Jesus? And yet it unfolds. It was a clear and unmistakable sign. Indeed, uh, history and tradition tells us that, that this was John Mark, the writer of the Gospel of Mark. The... the um, companion of Paul and they're the companion of Peter this was that that was that young man and this was the house in which he belonged his mother owned a house in Jerusalem we know this but that's tradition so beloved let me ask are you trusting in Christ whether you understand fully the the things that are going on are you trusting that he is in control of all things? That he is dictating all things? That he sees things beyond your scope of seeing them? We just see this or that. But Jesus can see the next day. He, he knows what's happening in the village over there and the village over there. His plans and purposes will be fulfilled. Are you trusting in him? In his sovereign will? Let me ask you, are you being obedient to the command? When he has commanded you to, to function or to go or to perform some action or deed... He has called you to some service... Are you being faithful in it? Are you going and doing, despite your natural feelings, despite your own confusion, despite perhaps some feeling of, I'm better than this. I'm much more capable. 
I have more to offer. Why didn't he, he ask Judas to go into it? It's Judas' job for their sake. Are you being faithful to the Saviour? Are you walking in his ways and keeping his quiet? Trusting that he knows best. And if he calls upon you to serve him, it's for a reason. It's an honour. It's not a punishment. He's calling you to be his helper, his co-laborer, one who assists him. He only calls those whom he trusts. Again, it's not punishment, it's a blessing. Take encouragement from the fact that whenever John and James got to where they're supposed to be, everything had been prepared. Everything was ready. People had worked hard in preparation. Again, the, the, all the details of the feast took several days. And not only was there preparation, but it was the exact amount that was needed for Jesus and his disciples to celebrate. It wasn't one less, it wasn't one more. It was exactly what was needed at the time. Be encouraged. The Bible demonstrates that as God guides, God provides. That he will supply all our needs in him. Think of our own situations as we move forward in Christ the, as a church. Let's not be afraid of where are we going to get this or where are we going to get that from. Let us be confident that the, the Christ who was able to provide at the most busiest time of the year, the greatest, most abundant festival in Jewish history, where there were half a million to a million people in Jerusalem, all celebrating, all wanting food, all, there would be a shortage of everything. And yet, in the midst of all that hustle and bustle, Jesus provided, and provided in abundance. Let's be confident in our God. Let's not look with human eyes. Let's not look low, but let's look high. Let's trust in him. Let, let our faith not be secular in nature. Sadly, we, our generation suffers from a secular faith. I, mean, I think it's one of the, the uh, counterpoints that coming out of the charismatic and they have their hyper, you know, name it and claim it. And so oftentimes we who are reforming by by our theological nature, become unsupernatural. We, we no longer make room for God in our lives to move in a supernatural way, to bring about supernatural acts of providence. Again, the, the food didn't just form itself. It didn't just fall from heaven fully formed. It wasn't a, 
A creative miracle like when Jesus made the, 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 the fish and the loaves. Some person had to, whether it was a woman or a man, I don't really know. Somebody had to take the ingredients and put them in a mortal, not with a mortar, a mortar and squidge them together and make, mix up the, the vinegar, wine, and make this bitter salsa. Somebody had to break, uh, to mix the ingredients of the bread, collect the, 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 the right ingredients according to the recipe, mix the ingredients, flatten out the bread. It all had to be according to the, 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 the strict protocol of the meal. The room had to be laid out in a certain way in accordance with the, 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 the protocol. People had to sit in certain places according to their nearness with Jesus. And those things just didn't happen. Someone came and planned and purposed and moved them more. And it wasn't Jesus nor his disciples. It was someone other. And yet it was Jesus that made it happen. Apart from his disciples. They, they, though they were the beneficiaries of it, they did not make it happen. They did not do it by their own hands. It reminds us, doesn't it, of when the children of Israel came out of Egypt and they entered into the promised land and God drove out the nations before them and so that the people didn't have to plant vineyards and they didn't have to to build houses because the Lord had caused the nations before them to plant vineyards and to build houses which the Children of Israel took possession of. They took possession of the land. Beloved, let us not be secular in our faith. Let us not have an outward appearance of godliness, but lacking an inward reality. Let us always remember that we serve a supernatural God. We serve a God who is able to provide all of our needs. And we'll provide all of our needs, not one euro more or not one person less, but exactly what we need in exactly the time that we need it. I wish there there was time for me to tell you the stories of of people like George Muller. George Muller was a little Prussian uh, missionary in the 1800s who God did wonderful, mighty things through. He, he cared for orphans. And he, during a time when there were countless street orphans, where, where there was no state to look after, and children were just slung out into the street like garbage. And where George Muller was living in Bristol in England, at that time there was an abundance of them because people were so ungodly that they just abandoned their children in the street. And there was a, a, a plague of street children if you've been to any, when we were in Africa, um, in, in Kampala, they had a plague of street children. You would see gangs of street children just wandering the streets. And in that time, God raised up men like George Muller, little, tiny, tiny, thinly boned German guy. And by faith, by prayer, and by the answer of prayer, God caused through him the establishment of orphanages, boys and girls, orphanages, segregated sexes, 
where the people were, where the kids were cared for. Not only were they given a place to live and to sleep, but they were given education. They were taught skills so that when they left, they were able to provide for themselves and for their families. Indeed, uh, it was said of those, of those schools that, that just normal people wanted to send their children there so that they might get a good education. So well-educated were the orphans at Muller's. And yet, again, he never asked for one penny. He never solicited funds. He didn't get government support. He sought support from God and prayed and sought the Lord with tears. And if you read the accounts, it's amazing. All the kids at the tables ready for breakfast and they have no money and they have no food. They're like, what are we going to do? And there was one particular nurse carer who was there and she, she didn't really, she wasn't a great supporter of this idea by faith. And she's tapping her foot. The kids are here. They're going to starve. No breakfast this morning. And at the door. And the door opens. And uh, a milkman. Now, not the milkman as we would know, but they had a big cart. And he's look, Mr. Muller, I'm sorry, but my cart has just broken down outside your orphanage. And if I don't, uh, I can't take the milk into town because it's going to spoil would it be okay, sir, if I bring the milk in here and just give it to the kids? Better the kids get it than it just spoils in my van. It just, it'll just turn to the cheese in my van and I can't get it out or my, my cart. And George Miller was like, yes, sir. Brought it in, milk straight from the farm. A few moments later, and uh, opened up and says, uh, there's the baker. The baker says, Mr. Muller, I, I, I apologize. I don't mean to disturb you, but... I made too much, bread, too much bread this morning and there's no one to buy it. Rather than just letting it go rotten, could I give it to the children? Yes, certainly. And it was exactly the amount needed. This happened time and time and time again. He records it. And it's a great demonstration of the providence of God for those who believe. Now, I'm not saying that we should become people who just live by that kind of faith. But we should have certainly, George Muller said that he did not have a gift of faith, nor was it a supernatural difficult, but rather he had a simple faith of a simple man who trusted in a supernatural God. This is a lesson for us, beloved. This, this portion of scripture where we see a supernatural providence of God through the natural as an encouragement to ourselves to our own souls that our God is in control and can be depended upon Jesus still provides so beloved in closing let's remember that there will be times in your Christian life when the Lord calls upon you to serve and it may be to some extent below your station it might be Something that you're not naturally called to do. You might not understand the reason for it. And it might be hilariously ridiculous to you. But Christ has a plan and a purpose. Judas had to not know. It had to be concealed from Judas where they were going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, celebrate the Passover meal. Otherwise, he would have reported it. So he couldn't know. 
That was part. Another part, it was a lesson to the leaders, to those who would take over after Christ would be translated up, that they were to be servers, that they were to be the slaves of the church, that they were not to be among those who sought to be served. Let us be humble of nature and do what we're commanded to do. Regardless of how ridiculous, regardless of how much it, it smarta, your pain, pains us to do. Let's not look around and wonder why didn't Christ give this job to somebody else? Why? Why hasn't he? Why isn't he doing it? It's his responsibility. If it was given to us, it was given to us for a reason. Now we must trust that he has a plan and a purpose, and it will be fulfilled. Let's remember the preparations. Let's remember the, 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 the time it took to make this meal. And yet, uh, the disciples didn't make it. The disciples didn't prepare it. All that was done was done for them. Let's trust that God will provide for us if we are obedient. There's the old Pentecostal saying, and I don't even know if it's Pentecostal. The Pentecostals might have stolen it. That obedience brings the blessing and disobedience the curse. To obey God brings blessing. To walk in his ways and keep his requirements brings increase into our lives. But to walk in disobedience, to drag your feet, to be stiff-necked and hard-headed, to be bitter of heart and ungrateful brings about the curse. Let us not be held among those. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you help us. Lord, in this short passage of Scripture, there's so much that you have to say to us. Help us, O Lord, to be among those who do not count ourselves too high, not worthy, or the, the jobs that you call us to are not worthy of our goodness or greatness lord help us even though we might not understand though we might not see the full picture help us to trust you and to know and to believe that you know what you're doing lord help us help us to see through this scripture that you are able to provide for us to care for us to keep us lord that you're able to the natural and the unnatural means to be able to provide for your people lord that you will feed us Lord, we know that you have done so spiritually through the, the cross, that you have died for us and that you have made preparations for us. Help us, O oh God, to see their true and real living self. Lord, we pray. Lord, we ask us now for your glory and your glory alone in Jesus' precious name. Amen.